Hello, and welcome to the Color of Youth podcast. In this episode, we met with political activist Olivia Juliana, who shared her experience with politics as a young person. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Olivia. Thank you so much for being here today. Would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Olivia Juliana. I'm the Director of Politics and Government Affairs at Gen Z for Change, and I'm an activist here in Texas, and I am... 20 years old, and I am a sophomore at the University of Houston, Victoria. That's so cool. Could you tell us a little bit about what Gen Z for Change is? Gen Z for Change is a coalition of activists, organizers, and creators who utilize social media to push for progressive change. We started in 2020 as um, an unofficial organization called TikTok for Biden um, a month before the election. And uh, at the time it was um, 500 TikTok creators, the combined audience of 500 million people. And our sole purpose was to get young people um, excited and invested and active in the upcoming presidential election. And we were very successful with that. Um, Tens of millions of views, you know, within the first week or so of our launch. And after that, after the election, we realized that we had a really successful reach and platform. And so we uh, incorporated as a 501c4 nonprofit, Gen Z for Change. And we began organizing in um, different ways that, you know, we thought were unique. Uh, Our first really big initiatives were around uh, vaccine information, about helping people get access to safe factual information about the vaccines and get vaccinated if they wanted to do that. Um, And then also getting people to understand what was in the Build Back Better, uh, the Build Back Better Act. And then following that, we kind of started getting more into what we call like meddling kids type stuff. Um, Starbucks was trying to hire, you know, scab workers at unionizing stores. And one of our coders created a code that could send fake job applications to the digital forms that these Starbucks stores were putting up to keep them from hiring workers to fire those who were trying to unionize. And we ended up sending hundreds of thousands of fake job applications to keep them from hiring these workers. We took down uh, a tip line that Governor Glenn Youngkin had put up in Virginia to snitch on teachers. We made a code that filled it with like saucy Santana and like the B movie script. And uh, we, started our safer initiative after Roe v. Wade was overturned to uh, send accurate tips to crisis pregnancy centers on Google and Yelp to show people that abortion care was not offered there. And then also raising money for abortion funds, which was wildly successful. We ended up raising $2.3 million uh, for 50 abortion funds across the country. I think it ended up being that each fund got, oh, I want to say over $40,000. we're doing quick math on that. It was about $46,000 per fund. Um, and ever since then, we've just continued on doing different initiatives, advocating for policy that we believe in that uplifts young people uh, and you know the working class and just haven't ever really looked back. That's so incredible, um, especially since this was like all digital at first, all virtual, where you kind of were able to build this platform of so many, so many people. Um, but I guess going back to even before you started that, what got you interested in government and in activism? 
Yeah. Um, I, I have, I kind of think I've always been an inherently political person. It's just what were my political beliefs. Um, my dad was uh, a political science major in college before he ended up dropping out to, you know, to take care of his family. And growing up, I was, you know, watching the news every single day. Fox and Friends was on the TV as I got ready for school every morning. Um, you know, I was in kindergarten watching the Obama-John McCain debates with my dad. You know, and I, I had always kind of been aware of what government was, how it worked. And it wasn't until my freshman year of high school, I joined debate where I really had to get a grip and learn about politics and policy. And from there, I got really, really invested in it about, you know, how does how does government work? How does legislation work? Um, and what, what is the history of these things in our country? Um, and so I just kind of kept slowly getting more and more involved and, you know, keeping tabs and being well-researched. And then my junior year of high school is when COVID started and the lockdowns happened. And I was stuck at home just on my phone all day, every day. And I was just watching online, uh, you know, the resurgence of this major civil rights movement with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and a very contentious presidential election and a global pandemic just all at once, just watching at home as, you know, a 17-year-old who lived in a very small rural conservative area, I didn't really see people around me who had the same beliefs that I did. And so I kind of went online to try and find that. Um, I wanted to go march in Houston at some protests, and my dad told me uh, no, because for one, my age, but two, like, he didn't agree with the principle of why I wanted to go. So instead of going, I started making TikTok videos about politics. And when that happened, it's it's just, I got more involved than I ever could have imagined because politics, policy, activism became my life 24 seven. And now it's like second nature to me to talk about uh, grants or funding or, you know, constitutional law just because I started posting TikToks. And now it's, you know, it's not just something I do in my spare time. It's it's my career. It's how I pay my bills. Um, and so it's just, it's been a really interesting ride uh, as far as, you know, getting on the road to that place. But I think the bigger aspect of it is when your identity is politicized, you really don't have a choice but to get involved with politics. And, you know, I'm a I'm a woman. I'm a third generation. Um, no, not third generation. I'm fourth generation Texan. Um, I'm, you know, very, I'm openly queer. And all of these different identities I have have been inherently attacked and politicized in the last few years. And when people are attacking or targeting the very fabric of who you are, you can't help but get involved and defend yourself and defend others like you. And so I think that's just kind of brought me to this culmination point now of doing the work that I do and having a job that I have is it all comes down to defending myself and de defending others like me. You mentioned that your dad didn't necessarily agree with your viewpoints. Was it difficult? Or is it difficult to kind of be this really well-known big advocate for certain um, controversial and politicized topics and ideologies 
when your family or at least your dad doesn't necessarily agree with you? I mean, yes and no. Uh, I'm I'm the only Democrat in my in my family, um, and it's really interesting because I feel like um, honestly I feel like I'm in a position of privilege because even though my family doesn't agree with me, and I mean very much so, doesn't agree with me on a lot of different things and likes to argue and yell about it, my family is very supportive of me as an individual and it's really interesting to see my dad who is just you know a lifelong conservative be very supportive of his daughter and be like this is look this is my daughter with the with the vice president or this is my daughter at the you know at this democratic event and he's so excited to show people and he's so proud and even now, you know, living in Harris County, there are a lot of local elected Democratic officials who I know who, because of my dad's job, he's now met. And these are people who previously he's like, oh, I don't like them. But now he meets them because they're like, oh, you know, you know, Olivia. And he's like, that's my daughter. And he's like, oh, you know, that, that person was really, really nice. And they they seem like a really good person. And it's just been really interesting to watch. Um but I think that it kind of boils down to my my parents and my family have always really had these very strong values of being kind to people, even if you don't agree with them, and being just generally a, a good person. And I'll say this is my dad because I believe it to be true. You know, my dad is the type of person where he would give you the shirt off of his back. And it doesn't matter if, you know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, he would do it for anyone. Um, and that's kind of the value he instilled in me. So it's been difficult at times because there, there are conversations we've had where, you know, they, they've led to like huge fights or like huge disagreements. But at the end of the day, I know that my family will support me no matter what. And that, you know, if I ever need them, that they're going to be there for me. And I know that that's hard because uh, not not a lot of people in the space that I'm in um, can say that. And, and that's unfortunate, but I, I consider myself to be very privileged in that aspect. That is really interesting to hear, especially because, you know, we have this huge problem right now where political polarization is really ripping people apart. And I think it's really inspiring that you're able to stay so connected with your family and your, you know, and people around you, despite being from different political parties, I guess. Um, another question I had while you were talking was about how do you balance like your school, like your studies in college with being a full-time advocate and like policy, um, I guess just someone involved with government since you seem to be so busy. How, how do you manage all of that? I, I was very intentional with picking the programs that I did. Um, I picked an online accelerated bachelor's program so that I can do school while I travel. And uh, the weekends have kind of become my de facto school time. Like I am only in one class right now that started this past week. I have not opened Blackboard once and my assignments are due tonight. So I will be doing all of my assignments tonight. Um, that That's just kind of how I function. That's how I think, like I fix things. Um, but I also think that that's, again, like a position of privilege because 
the classes that I'm taking as a political science student are largely, you know, po policy and politics based. And for me, that's like, like writing my ABCs, like write a 10 page paper about, you know, the constitution, like, that's easy. I can do that. Like, it's just something that I've been versed in for many years. So it's easy for me to kind of just do it and get it done. Um, but honestly, just time management of like, I'm very, I'm very um, particular about making sure that I know what all of my tasks and to-do lists are at any given point and knowing when and what date I need to have those done by because I also have horrible ADHD. Um, and it's just, it's helped a lot, but I'm only, like I said, I'm only in one class right now. The last quarter I was in two classes and uh, I don't have the traditional full-time college student schedule. So it's a little bit easier for me. And I was very purposeful in doing that because I knew I wouldn't be able to fully commit my time to a full-time in-person bachelor's program. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what's it been like to have kind of this giant community since you're, you have, I forgot the exact number, but you have a significant amount of followers on TikTok and Instagram. Um, what's up and like to have so many people wanting to hear what you have to say and wanting to follow with what you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, it's, I have 627,000 on TikTok, 70,000 on Instagram, and 375,000 on Twitter. And it's honestly, I mean, I don't think I fully comprehend it. Like, I don't think I fully understand the depth of which how many people out there want to hear what I have to say, but also like know who I am. And it, it really trips me up. Like, especially if I, if someone recognizes me in public, which has started to happen more and more frequently, that's like insane to me or um, people commenting stuff online. It, I, I don't think I'll ever fully be able to understand the, the extent of it. Um, but it, it's, it's really nice because it's like, wow, you know, like there are a lot of people out there who really support me and who agree with what I have to say. And I think that that's a big reminder of me too, is, you know, I think there are more good people out there than bad. I think there are more people who care about having legitimate conversations and protecting people's rights than we think. Um, cause you know, not only do I have a really young following, um, I, you know, I have quite a bit of an older following too and i also have quite a bit of a, a conservative following which surprises a lot of people and i think it's because um i've been very intentional in trying to cultivate a space where i can have legitimate political conversations with people who i don't even agree with um because of there's been this polarization problem and uh diplomacy is really important to me in terms of making sure that we're having productive conversations. And so I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to fully grasp it, but it, it's been really surreal um, to kind of just go from some kid living in small town, Texas to, you know, I live in one of the biggest cities in the world and I have, you know, millions of people who have heard and seen and listened to what I've said. It just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't comprehend to me. Like I did the math, um, in the last year and a half, my content across platforms has gotten over 700 million impressions. And I just can't, I, 
I don't believe it. Like, I don't think that's real, even though it is. Um, I just don't think we're meant to comprehend those kinds of things, I guess, is my answer. <clears throat> yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. You can't even like visualize 700 million people. That's insane. I actually was going to ask you about if you have any conservatives following you. And so I guess my follow-up question, since you kind of already answered that, would be, what do you think is a hallmark of making sure that you can have respectful, educated conversations with people, regardless of political belief? Honestly, humor, I think is the biggest thing is I found that, you know, if you, if you've got a good sense of humor and uh, you can have conversations, then you're going to be able to get a lot farther. Like there, there are two people in particular who I interact with quite a bit online and that's, um, Ham Higby and CJ Pearson, who are both prominent young right, uh, right-wing conservative content creators who work for PragerU. And I interact with them quite a bit online and people are always surprised at the level of almost friendship that we foster because, you know, we fundamentally disagree and we argue all the time online. But there's this kind of mutual respect almost of you're advocating for what you believe in. I'm advocating for what I believe in. And even though I think that half the time what they're saying is absolutely bonkers and I completely disagree with it, you know, in the middle of a very tense conversation, I'll just be like, CJ, you are acting like such a Libra right now. And it just kind of cuts the tension and like people just let their guard down and have more honest conversation. And I think that that's the, that's the tone and that's the, the energy we should have going into these conversations, you know, there's always going to be something we can agree on. There's always going to be something that we can agree on. And I tell this story a lot of, you know, be, diplomacy, being able to have conversations and be kind to people is so important. And, you know, on election day, 2022, the day before the election, I was headed to the airport um, to go to Austin for election night because that's the Texas capital. And my Uber driver um, brought up the fact that he was a conservative because I was wearing a Beto O'Rourke shirt. And so this is a 45 minute drive to the airport. And I'm like, this is like as soon as I get in the car and I'm like, oh my God. And so we start talking, you know, we fundamentally disagree. And he's talking about, you know, Democrats are criminals and all this stuff. And I was like, you know, I don't agree with that, but, you know, let me ease the tension and say, you know, I'll concede that there are some Democrats who do stuff that I don't necessarily agree with, because that's true. But at the end of the, at the end of the car ride, you know, we were talking about how we both agree that there should be more community college programs and, you know, um, vocational school programs. And we found some common ground to agree on uh, based off both of our previous lived experiences. He used to work in a high school. I went to community college. And, you know, we shook hands and went on our way. And I think just being intentional about trying to find something that you can both concede on is um, is really important. And just keeping a keeping a positive energy. Uh, but I, I know that that's very difficult for some people to do. And uh, it, it's not for everyone. I will say that. That's a really interesting story. And I can see why you share that so often, because that that's quite powerful when you really think about it, being able to kind of after 45 minutes, find common ground with someone who, you know, seems to be against everything that you stand for. Um, I guess I've seen, you've appeared a lot in the news because of 
your work around abortion access and reproductive justice. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I never really intended to to become an abortion rights activist. It just it just kind of happened. Um, you know, after Texas Texas passed uh, SB eight in the summer of 2021. And that was the civil bounty law that essentially banned abortion in the state. I was just so disgusted by it that I was like, well, what can I do? And then they put this tip line out, uh, this like digital tip line to report people who have had an abortion. And I saw what TikTok had done before in terms of uh, mobilizing people around tip lines. And so I called on my followers to, to flood the tip line and they, and they ended up doing it. And, you know, the tip line got taken down and I got a lot of national attention about that. And then after that kind of happened, the the reproductive justice community just really took me in and embraced me and started training me and teaching me. And from there, I was just like, you know, this is, this is something I believe in. You know, I have been dealing with reproductive health care issues myself since I was 12. I was diagnosed with PCOS. And from there, I just kind of really, you know, kept my foot on the pedal. And, you know, the biggest thing that everyone knows me from is last summer um, after Roe fell, Matt Gates, you know, uh, he, he gave this horrible description of abortion rights activists at this Turning Point USA event, and I publicly called him out for it. And I, I wasn't I wasn't nice. I'm not going to pretend like I was a frail young activist uh, and play the victim. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I was I was pretty mean to him. I was like, I'm not 5'3", I'm 5'11". You know, I wear heels to remind small men like you of your place. Because, that, like, that's what it is, is. You're specifically targeting and attacking women who are fighting for their reproductive autonomy based off their physical appearance. That's disgusting. You're disgusting for doing that, and you should be called out on it. Um, his response was to, you know, tweet out my photo as a sitting congressman with his following that was 10 times the size of mine um, to try to say that I fit this description. And he can say that it's not what he was trying to do, but he was trying to body shame me and bully me online. That's what he was doing. And uh, unfortunately for Matt Gates. Um, I, I'm not one to shy away from an argument or from a fight. And I started fundraising for abortion funds. You know, we raised over $2 million. And I actually um, I actually met Matt Gates in person about three weeks ago and shook his hand and told him thank you. And he was pissed. He, like, dropped my hand and muttered insults and walked away. Um, but I think that that kind of uh, just bravery in the face of conflict is something that I've been taught and learned specifically from the reproductive justice community. Because uh, I've seen abortion rights activists come face to face with counter protesters who are yielding or wielding AR-15s and not care. Um, and so it's just been this incredibly humbling journey to be embraced by this community who has done so much work over the last decades uh, and who are just so brave and courageous to, to be part of that community. And what started as a small way and now I feel like is a, is a big way online is, is it's really an honor for me and I take it very seriously. That's incredible that you were able to do that. 
Um, I feel like that's definitely more than most people can say that they've done for their entire lives. Um, and it's very impressive. Um, I will say I have been following you for quite a long time. And so it's just been really inspiring to see all that you've been doing. So my next question, I guess, would be what advice do you have to younger people or to young people in general about like what they can do in their communities to advocate for issues that are important to them? Yeah, I think that there's a real problem with politics and activism and how it's framed to young people is, you know, you need to be involved with a big national movement or a big national race to make a difference. And that's not true. Uh, every single election that happens is going to have an impact on people's lives. And the example of this that I use is um, in 2021, the same year that SB8 was passed, a woman was arrested in Starr County, Texas, for what was called a, a self-induced abortion. And she was arrested on a, on a murder charge for that. And the only reason why she was released is because the district attorney decided to not pursue charges and the sheriff released her from arrest. Um, both the sheriff and the district attorney, those are two elected positions that happened on a local level that made the difference in not just that woman's life in her case, but in precedent. Because if they had followed through with that, we very likely would have seen that continue across the country. And so for me, it's it's that story of reminding people that local elections can make a really big impact. Uh, and they're the ones that have the most effect on your day-to-day -day lives, your city council members, your county judges. They're going to decide where a lot of that really important federal governmental funding goes, and it's going to determine if they fix your roads, if they fund your schools, if they um, you know, make sure that your communities are safe. That's going to be determined by those local governments, and you should be involved with them. You should know what they're doing. You should know when their meetings are. But also, uh, local mutual aid in your area is incredibly important as well. You know, I live in Houston, and one of the largest problems that we consistently see in a lot of parts of Texas is food insecurity. And, you know, the Houston Food Bank is one of the largest food banks in the state and in the country. And to be involved with that is you know that you are directly going to be helping people in your community who need it the most. And so I think just remembering that local organizing really does matter and really does make a difference. Um, and you're, you're helping people in your community who you know. You're helping people who walk the same streets that you do, who went to the same schools as you did. Like These are people who are part of what makes you you. And there's this really great quote by uh, Gary Chambers, who ran for Senate in Louisiana. He was an activist, which is, grow in the garden that you're planted in. And I think that a lot of times we lose focus um, on the fact that we don't need to, you know, move to Houston or live in Los Angeles or D.C. to make a difference. We need people organizing in, you know, Laredo and, uh, you know, Charlottesville just as much. We need people organizing in small towns um, to do these kinds of things. And so I guess my advice would just be find find a find a cause close to home that you care about and get involved and be part of your community grow in the garden that you were planted in you don't need to move or uh find a find a huge big cause to make a difference your community needs you just as much as that national movement needs you that's definitely something that i really resonate with and i guess i recently turned 18 and a lot of my friends have as well and one really big issue that 
we've all kind of noticed is that young people seem sort of disillusioned with the idea of the people who represent them and going to vote. What advice would you give to someone who is maybe feeling discouraged, is a discouraged voter, a discouraged young voter, who doesn't necessarily think that their vote will make a difference? Yeah. I think for me, the one of the best examples that I can point to of what makes a difference is 20, the 2020 election in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was won by Biden by, I want to say, 0.05%. So we're talking about a, a couple thousand votes determined that Biden would be the person to win the nom uh, win the votes of the state of Wisconsin for the presidential election, which ultimately is part of what carried him over the finish line. In Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is an elected position that happens uh, every few years. Your term is 10 years. Donald Trump, after losing Wisconsin, filed lawsuits to throw out mail-in ballots in the state. And it went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. If the state Supreme Court had been just a little bit different, if some of those conservative justices voted a different way, if the people of Wisconsin hadn't organized or on electing other elected officials on that state Supreme Court, it's very likely that those couple thousand ballots that made the difference could have been disqualified and could have changed the results of the elections in the state and made the state go red. And if the state had gone red, it's very likely that Donald Trump could have won the presidential election in 2020. And so those few thousand votes, and I'm talking maybe two, 3,000 votes in the state of Wisconsin, determined the political future of the entire country. 350 million people were determined by a couple thousand people in Wisconsin. And so people say, you know, their vote doesn't matter. I think that's the example I probably point to the most is look at what that did. Or, you know, in Arizona, um, only won by a couple tens of thousands of votes. Uh, Katie Hobbs won by a very small margin to become governor now, when the alternative governor would have been somebody who denied the election in 2020, who, uh, you know, encouraged January 6th. These are a few, just a few amount of votes that made the difference and made the impact. Um, so your vote absolutely does matter. In terms of being happy about the people you vote for, I think that there's a real disillusionment that's happened with young voters in the Democratic Party. And I think that's for one of two reasons. I think for one, um, it's a generational problem of same old faces and the same old places. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's been in office for like decades, for a long time. Uh, and so it's like, well, well, you know, when are we going to start to see people like us be in those positions? Which I completely understand. Uh, but the second problem, I think, is understanding what has actually been done. You know, when I talk to young people about Biden, nine times out of ten, I only hear uh, the things that he's done or that Congress has done they disagree with. You know, I hear about the Willow Project. Um, I hear about Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, 
And so my response to that is usually be like, okay, well, wait, what about all these other things? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? And so I think it's an informational problem of getting young people to understand the good things that have been done, not just by Biden, by Congress, but by uh, the, the Democratic elected officials that they've put up. You know, um, President Biden and this Congress, with a very slim majority from 2021 to January 2023, were able to pass the American Rescue Plan that had provisional grants in it for college students to pay their tuition until I paid my tuition my freshman year of college. They passed the first piece of bipartisan gun control legislation in over 30 years. Both of those are bipartisan. They passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill that's going to rebuild some of the most um, disenfranchised and impoverished parts of our country's infrastructure, which we should have done 20 years ago. Uh, they passed the Inflation Reduction Act, the first piece of major climate legislation to ever pass in U.S. history. Uh, and, you know, these bills aren't perfect. You know, I wish we could do more. But the reality is to be able to pass those four pieces of legislation with such a small majority that's going to make, honestly, such a big impact is, is historical. And getting young people to understand just the depth of how unprecedented it is to see something like that, but also to see those kinds of investments into young voters. It's not just, you know, the gun control legislation and the climate control legislation. Those are things that have been pushed by young voters for, for well over the last decade. And Biden is kind of the first president who's actually delivered on that. Um, and also, you know, student debt relief is, he did that and it's going up to the Supreme Court now. And I'm having good authority that it's it's likely not going to get overturned. He's the first president to really take big steps to, to counteract the predatory nature of the public higher education system. And so it's really important to me to remind young people of what has been done and what is possible. Because if we could do that with a slim majority in the first two years, if we can get a super majority in the last four, if we could get a super majority and we could get all of these members who we need elected into Congress, the things that we can do, I mean, are almost unmeasurable. You know, not only could we codify Roe v. Wade, but we could pass uh, more climate legislation. We could expand Medicaid. We could expand Social Security. These are major things that young people should be aware about, should be invested in. Um, and so it's important to me to remind them of that. And of course, you know, there's going to be criticism of people are going to call you a shrill. I'm like, I get it. Um, but the alternative is if we don't vote these people into office, if we don't turn out and mobilize for the Democratic candidate, the, the future of this is bleak. And two great examples of that are uh, the, the tale of two states, Pennsylvania and Florida. Both had a gubernatorial election in 2022. Um, one had an incumbent Republican governor, that's Florida with Ron DeSantis, and one had an open seat um, with Josh Shapiro, who was the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, running against a right-wing extremist lawmaker who was part of January 6th. Pennsylvania organized with young voters. Uh, and Josh Shapiro kicked Doug Mastrano's ass and won. And there was a total lack of organizing uh, investment in Florida. Ron DeSantis won his re-election. Josh Shapiro won his. In the span of time post that election, 
in Pennsylvania, and actually, I think I have it right here. Um, Josh Shapiro just passed and implemented a state budget that is going to fund um, school lunch programs for all Pennsylvania kids who need it. It's going to fund public defenders for the first time in Pennsylvania history. It's going to invest in paramedics and firefighters. Um, it's going to invest in farmers. It's going to invest in mental health facilities for, for students and public schools. All of these incredible things. He eliminated the, the degree requirement for governmental jobs and opened these really great job positions to the entire public. Uh, amazing things coming out of Pennsylvania because people organized to elect this Democratic governor. And then in Florida, you have outright fascism. You have a governor who is trying to ban DEI um, programs, who is trying to ban specifically black and brown clubs and organizations at public universities, uh, who, who are consistently defunding and attacking teachers in public education. I mean, it's, it's night and day. And I think that's just the tale of this is what happens if you don't get out and organize. This is what happens if you don't get out and vote is what's happening in Florida could happen across the country if we don't prevent that from happening by getting out and voting for candidates who we might not agree with everything on, but we agree that, you know, fascism is a bad thing and we shouldn't be falling into that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think it's really easy sometimes for people to look at Florida, for example, or states with similar situations as Florida and say like, oh, like that's like awful. I can't believe it. Florida is like insane. And then fail to recognize that that could is a very real possibility for their state, even mm -hmm. even though we don't recognize it. Moving Moving on from that, what are your future plans, do you think? Are you going to stay in advocacy? Do you see yourself um, running for public office in the future? What um, What do you envision for yourself? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to run for office. I don't know um, if, you know, if I have those bigger aspirations. I mean, I jokingly tell people, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be governor of Texas one day. Um, but as far as my future plans, honestly, you know, I, I love my job. I love what I do. And I think for now, the this is the best means of achieving change that I can come up with is mobilizing young people and holding politicians accountable and being transparent about what's going on in our government. Um, I, I mean, I don't, you know, if, if it's my time to do that, then it'll be my time to do that and I'll know. But for right now, I'm uh, I'm an activist and an organizer, and that's that's who I am, and that's that's what I'm going to keep doing. That's really interesting. Um, well, if you do become governor of Texas one day, I'll be glad to say that I was able to meet you. Um, I guess, what is your favorite part about your job? I mean, I I love. I love getting to meet and talk to so many amazing organizers and activists and young people. It's it's really so surreal to me that I get to learn from people who are so incredibly talented and so incredibly brilliant. I mean, I've, you know, I've been able to talk to um, you know, Latasha Brown, founder of Black Voters Matter. 
I've been able to talk to Heather Booth, you know, one of the original Jane, uh, Jane Bros and the Jane Roe case. I've been able to learn from Minnie Timuraju, who leads NARAL, Pro-Choice America, used to work for Hillary Clinton. Like, to be able to have conversations and learn from, you know, such brilliant women, brilliant women of color who have truly made such a difference is so humbling to me. Um, but also just getting to know and, you know, work with so many amazing young activists. It's like my my friends at Gen Z for Change, my coworkers, have honestly become family. You know, like these are people who I've spent the last two, three years um, going from a ch going from childhood to adulthood, uh, just organizing, and it's so fulfilling and so incredible to have that kind of community that you know I really didn't have growing up, and just making sure that you know there the people who are coming up behind me aren't going to have to go through those same things of feeling like there's not a there's not a community out there for them. Um, I think that's probably been my favorite thing. Traveling has been really fun. I've gotten to see a lot of really great places. I've been in Nashville, Portland, DC, LA, going to St. Louis in a few weeks. Um, but I'd say like the opportunities it's given me is on a personal level of like, I just got to meet Megan the Stallion. Like, I don't, like, I don't know what tops that. Like, I really don't of like meeting people who I look up to. It's just absolutely insane. That's absolutely incredible. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but tons of people look up to you as well. And it's really great being able to talk to you and kind of get, get your, I guess, story. What would you want to tell a younger version of yourself? I know that's kind of a cliche question, but I feel like personally, I love hearing the answers to those. Whew. I think I would probably tell the younger version of myself that she's exactly where she needs to be. Um, I've been very open about the fact that I had a really rough childhood. You know, my uh, I had a lot. I had a, a lot of issues watching people in my life deal with drug addiction, or you know, the CPS system, or you know, lack of healthcare, poverty. Just, just dealing and seeing those kinds of things up front, you know, as a child, it, it really is traumatizing. And it really is a lot to put on a kid. But because of the lived experiences that I've had and because I've seen so much of that firsthand, and now that I'm in these spaces, especially when I'm in, you know, if I'm with, you know, elected officials, because I've had that perspective, I can speak to those things in a way that not necessarily a lot of people in these spaces can. Um, and that kind of goes back to the diplomacy thing I was talking about earlier is I've had a lot of people call me out for meeting with more moderate or more establishment Democratic elected officials. Like, uh, you know, I've met with the vice president. I've met with uh, Speaker Pelosi. My response to that is, you know, if I can just have five minutes with them and I can talk to them about a certain political issue, how many people who grew up in the circumstances that I grew up in are ever going to get that opportunity? How many of us are ever going to get the ability to tell our stories about what it's like to really go through those things and to come out of it? And so for me, I think it would be that I'm, I'm exactly where I need to be and that everything I'm going through is going to have a purpose. Um, and just remembering that 
now is, is incredibly important to me. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, thank you for sharing. I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. It's been really incredible hearing you talk, and I'm sure so many people are going to find this interview really informational, inspiring, and yeah. So again, just thank you so much for coming. It really means a lot. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Hello, and welcome to the Color of Use podcast. In this episode, we met with political activist Olivia Juliana, who shared her experience in politics as a young person. We hope you enjoy. Thank you.